Welcome to the Smart Sign Podcast, a series at the intersection of safety, transportation, and e-commerce. For more information or to find some of the products discussed in our show, visit smartsign.com. We're here with Dr. Harley Ropart, a pediatrician and infectious disease doctor with over 175 medical publications to his name. He's also a parenting expert, a best-selling author, and a father of three. We're going to talk about the importance of hand washing, the upcoming flu season, and how to best protect your kids from getting sick. So let's begin. Most people know that hand washing is proper behavior. Why do you think that so many bathroom users just don't do it? Well, that studies have actually been done. They've put hidden cameras in bathrooms to look at the behavior of people in bathrooms. And the first thing to say is that women are better than men that people in public bathrooms are better than at home, where they okay. tend to think that, that their facilities are probably cleaner to begin with. But still, fewer than 25% of surveyed adults using public bathrooms wash their hands. And I think the answer is that we have done almost too good a job of educating uh, the public in the sense that what we tell people we're doing is protecting them against other people's germs. And so what people tend to do is they tend to leave the bathroom and then find somewhere to wash their hands when they're, when they're outside the bathroom because they worry that the bathroom door knob, the mm-hmm. bathroom door handle is dirty. What we advise is that you may not find the sink before you touch your face and potentially infect yourself with someone else's germs. And it's not just toilet germs, it's common cold and flu germs that we're actually more worried about transmitting. Um, And you can get that anywhere where someone has touched uh, 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 an inanimate object with dirty hands. So what we recommend is that you do carefully wash your hands in the bathroom and then use a paper towel to open the door. That's good advice. Um, Okay, so as a pediatrician, have you discovered any successful motivation techniques to get kids to consistently wash? Uh, Maybe a fragrant or fun hand soap or uh, some signs that cater to children? Well, um, I think signs are always a good idea uh, for those kids old enough to read. Uh, Signs remind them and cute um, cartoon character signs I think are helpful reminders. Um, but the, the best trick that parents have found over the years is to teach kids to sing the happy birthday song or Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they each last about 20 seconds and what we recommend for kids right. is that you run, your, run the soap and water um, over your hands for at least 20 seconds and then carefully rinse and dry. And um, we're grateful if kids do it for five seconds, but what we recommend is 20 seconds and Twinkle Twinkle Little Star gets them through that. That's a good advice. Um, Now, 20 seconds of just total exposure to washing or 20 seconds of scrubbing and then rinsing off after that? We'll take 20 seconds of basically anything. So so you turn the faucet on, you wet your hands, you soap them, and then you scrub from fingernails to wrists. And it's remarkable actually how long 20 seconds is when you try that. Um, so tw- if they'll do 20 seconds and then a rinse afterwards, 20 seconds of getting themselves lathered up um, from fingers to wrist, fingertip to wrist, and then do a rinse, we'll be very happy that they've done a good job. And Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, that's about the about 20, 20 se- seconds. About 20 okay, seconds, great. yeah. So Adam Grant, I'm not sure if you've heard of him, he's an organizational psychologist. He once ran a study on uh, which hand-washing signs hospital employees responded to best. 
We found that the signs that focus on protecting patients work nearly 10% better than those that focus on protecting the worker. Um, an example of one of our best-selling signs is one that says your hand hygiene prevents patients from catching diseases. Uh, would you know which signs are most prevalent at Children's Hospital or is there a certain legend that you feel works best? Well, I think uh, that the psychologist is right and that is that we all have a uh, of a sense of responsibility for patients, particularly mm -hmm. people who work in hospitals have a responsibility for patients. Um, we do have signs uh, in Children's Hospital about protecting patients. Um, you know, there are signs in restaurants to, to protect customers and to protect fellow workers too. Um, and I think, in I think in general it's fair to say that hospital workers are more conscientious. There's also a tremendous financial incentive right now um, if the government will withhold um, vital support for hospital programs if there is an, uh, a, an excess rate of infections in hospitals. And so hospitals are now doubling down on trying to get um, proper hand hygiene everywhere, bathrooms but also on the wards, proper hand hygiene to uh, prevent um, them from not only infecting patients but from losing funding. Hmm. Interesting. Um, did, was Children's Hospital ever at risk? No. No? It's because you were there. That's it. <laughs> um, is washing with hot water better than cold water? Well, um, I think washing with whatever temperature is comfortable because the act of washing is what's, is what's important. This is a physical removal of germs so that you're not trying to burn the germs off your hands with hot water. You're trying to physically, with lather, remove as many germs as possible. Mm -hmm. And so a, a tepid temperature or a warm temperature that will let you spend more time under the sink comfortably uh, is, the, is the right way. There, you can't make the water hot enough to kill the germs and not burn yourself. Right. So it really isn't a matter of killing germs, it's a matter of comfort in how much time you can spend washing. Makes sense. Now, is it more the scrubbing action that kills the germs, or is it the bacteria from the soap? Right. So, um, there are two um, germ-fighting approaches, and hand-washing takes care of both of them. One of them is, as you said, killing the germs. And there are antibacterial soaps um, that kill, they advertise 99.9% .9 of germs, and they contain an antibiotic and that antibiotic actually kills the germs. And then there's the physical act of manually removing the germs by the scrubbing, by your own actions of one hand rubbing against the other uh, in a thorough way uh, underwater with soap, that it soap opsonizes, it, it, mm -hmm. it loosens the, just as it does with grease, it loosens the, the dirt and the germs and you wash them away. Now people have done studies and in fact your hands have fewer living germs after using an antibacterial soap than after just using a regular soap. Right. But no one has shown that there's actually a reduction in the number of infections because of using an antibacterial soap. So it's hard to find non-antibacterial soaps anymore. Everything's got an antibiotic in it. But if you use a non-antibacterial soap, but you use it effectively, you're not posing a greater risk to yourself or others for infections, you are killing fewer germs, but they're probably not the germs that are going to cause infections. Right. And in your book, you talk about the difference between hand soap and liquid, liquid soap. Um, or, uh, yeah, I guess bar, soap in a bar and then soap in a bottle. Can you talk a little bit about that and which is best? Bar soap is fine, except that it sits in a soap dish. And okay. the soap dish is like a culture medium. 
So germs love the gooey mix of, of a soap dish because remember nobody's, nobody's using physical pressure to remove the germs so they can grow in that soap dish. So liquid soap is, is more hygienic because it doesn't, uh, it doesn't fester the germs in a, mm-hmm. in a tub that they're comfortable growing in. Okay. Uh, um, now again, uh, going back to germ-proof your kids, um, you talk about the hygiene hypothesis. Can you tell us briefly what it is and how much truth there is to that? Well, people have thought that the, <coughs> there, are, there are two truths. One truth is that we are seeing as a society a higher rate of allergic disorders and, and immunologic disorders, um, asthma, for example, and hay fever, increasing numbers. That's one truth. The other truth is that we are a more hygienic society, that we are washing our hands more, that we are using antibacterial soaps, we use more antibiotics. And people have, have hypothesized that the two are related. That is, that there is more in the way of immunologic dysfunction, more allergic disorders, because we're a cleaner society. And they point to um, different parts of the world right. where there doesn't seem to be as much hygiene and there doesn't seem to be as much allergy. Um, the problem with the hypothesis uh, is that it's, I think, similar to saying that everyone who ate pickles in 1875 is dead. And that's true. And they ate pickles and they're dead. Now the question is, are the two related? Right, causation versus correlation. Exactly. And so it's very hard to prove causation with the hygiene hypothesis. And there is a correlation. It's very hard to prove um, uh, causation. And I've never met a child who is too clean. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I really believe that, um, that we get exposed to plenty of stimulations to our immune system that will allow us to develop a healthy immune system. And I think we have to look for other reasons to explain the increased allergies and, and uh, asthma incidences we're seeing. Plus, people will probably use the hypothesis as an excuse to be less clean. I think that's. And you don't want people to go down that road. I think that's true, and and uh, and people have also used the hygiene hypothesis to argue um, against immunizations of children, okay. because they they say, well, you know, if we're protecting our kids, kids need to be exposed to germs, and if we're protecting them against too many germs, they're going to develop these dysregulations of their immune system. Um, that entire argument is facetious. Mm-hmm. Okay, so tell me a little bit about the efficacy of hand sanitizer. Is it as good as hand soap? Uh, when should you use it as opposed to soap? So um, alcohol hand sanitizers are very effective. And they are effective in a way, in several ways that are more effective than soap. So for example, um, antibacterial soap doesn't treat viruses. And viruses are what cause colds and flu. So you can use antibacterial soap until, until your hands are chafed, but you're not going to kill the flu virus that's on mm-hmm. your hands. On the other hand, you will wash the flu virus away. So washing your hands is good, but you don't need an antibacterial soap to wash your hands with. You will wash away cold and flu viruses just by the physical act of washing your hands. So washing your hands does treat or prevent transmission of colds and viruses, but it doesn't kill the viruses. In contrast, hand sanitizer does kill the viruses. Um, But it's not as good at lifting up, for example, you couldn't use alcohol hand sanitizer to clean your hands after they've been in mud because it just makes a gooey mess. It doesn't clean your hands. You need soap and water, and there's a lot of germs in mud. So there's a role for both, and what I recommend is that hand sanitizers should be available to you in places where you don't have soap and water. So keep them in the glove compartment of the car, 
keep them in your, in your handbag, uh, keep them on your desk at work. And after you've had contact with a lot of people, it, you don't have to, every time you touch a doorknob, use hand sanitizer, that's silly. But after you've had contact with a lot of people, you've, you've been to a meeting and you've, and you've shaken hands with all the other people at the meeting, go back to your desk and squirt the hand sanitizer on, rub it in well and kill the viruses that have just been passed to you before you touch your face and get the cold that the guy across the room had and, and then shook your hands, shook mm -hmm. your hand afterwards. When there's someone in the house who's sick, I think um, even though there's soap and water in the house, it's a good idea to put hand sanitizer in the rooms where there's no soap and water. So if, for example, if you go into the child's room, put a bottle of hand sanitizer uh, near the doorway so when you leave your sick child's room, you don't have to get sick. You squirt the hand sanitizer on and can protect yourself right. and not miss work. Well, so say you're leaving the bathroom and you don't have a towel to, you know, open it with a open the doorknob with a towel. So you have to touch the doorknob that maybe the last guy touched without washing his hands. I come back to work, should I put hand sanitizer on in that Absolutely. situation? Absolutely. Okay. So whenever you feel as if you have been in touch with high-risk surfaces, and those high-risk surfaces may be a dozen hands. I, uh, my wife and I uh, watched Jay Leno's monologue some nights, and you know he comes out and he gives high fives to everybody who's, who runs down from the audience, and then he puts his hands right in his pocket. Mm -hmm. And we're sure that he's got hand sanitizer that he's squirting on his hands in his pockets, and then he takes his hands out of his pocket and he rubs his hands like this, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and he, before he begins his monologue, to protect himself, we're sure, from the multiple hands that he's just had contact with. That would be a fun thing to find out. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to sneezing. How dangerous is it, and do we have to teach kids to sneeze better, or is that a hopeless feat? Well, I don't know if we need to teach them to sneeze better, but I think we need to teach them, we need to unteach them what we taught a whole generation or two, and that is sneeze into your hands. Right. We definitely don't want to do that. Right. We want to sneeze into our elbows, yeah. um, and, uh, and, that, and that means that it, it doesn't do anything for the child who's sneezing, but it does something for the other 15 kids on the playground whose, ha whose hands will not be contaminated by, by this child. A sneeze travels about three feet uh, in, in um, uh, radius around you. So if you're the center of the circle, three feet in all directions Interesting. Is, is about how far the, the germs in a, sneeze, in a sneeze fall. So those germs, when they land on a surface, are potentially infectious as long as that surface is moist and the contact comes within a, a, a few minutes. Um, some germs can even live for a few hours on moist surfaces. Uh, and these are, we're talking about cold and flu germs, so these are viruses, not bacteria. Um, so again, it's, you know, if you've been in contact with lots of surfaces, before you sit down to eat lunch, use hand sanitizer or wash your hands uh, well with soap and water. Okay. So you, you mentioned how there are different types of, of germs, there are cold and flu germs. Tell us about the difference between, or rather the effect that um, not hand washing has on the spread of the cold and the flu. Well, um, hand washing will prevent the spread of cold and flu, um, and not hand washing will not. So it's fairly straightforward. Okay. Um, if, you, if you are with someone who has a cold and you um, and you hold hands or you, or you uh, open the door of their apartment that they've been using and you then put your hands to your face as we do some hundreds of times a day. People have also done videotapes of, of classrooms and lecture halls and, and you, you're just remarkable how many times we touch our face. 
Um, and we have to be conscious of the fact that when we're touching our face, if we haven't washed before that, we potentially are infecting ourselves with something that um, we picked up from someone mm -hmm. else's hands or from an inanimate surface. So not washing our hands will increase our incidence of colds and flu. And it's when you touch your face, that's when that's when you can really pick up a virus. That's right, because the viruses get into our eyes, they get into our nose, and they get into our mouth. Okay. And they don't get into our ears, but they get into they get onto the mucous membranes of our face. Okay. So I'm going to stay on the flu topic for a minute here. Um, when exactly does flu season actually start, and why is it more prominent in the winter months? Well, those are really good questions. Um, it, it starts as early as September, late September, early October. Um, those are the earliest cases that we see, and it can run all the way through May. Now, the peak of the season really is December through March. That's when we primarily see it. And there have been studies that show that the flu virus grows better in cooler temperatures. And so the, the one hypothesis is that the virus itself is more prolific in cold weather. The other hypothesis is that in cold weather we're all closer to each other. That is, we're packed into classrooms, we're packed into, we're not outdoors where it's harder to spread viruses because there's the dilution effect of being outside and in open spaces. But when you're coughing and sneezing and, and uh, uh, giving each other high five, not on the playground, but inside in the gym where everybody is packed mm -hmm. on, on cold, snowy days, uh, or in the classroom where there's an indoor recess, that's when kids tend to transmit the flu. Right. Well, and additionally, I know if I live in New York City, and New York City is a lot more dense during the wintertime because people aren't traveling. During the summertime on the weekends, the city feels empty, so that, that also may have an effect. At a city level, that's right, exactly level. right, as opposed to in your home or in your school. You're exactly right. That is, everything's more dense in the winter. Right. See, I would think, though, that germs can live uh, for longer periods of time in moisture. And isn't, aren't humidity levels greater in the summer than the winter time? Well, it depends where you live. Okay. Uh, it depends where you live. And generally that's true. And moisture is, germs do like moisture. Um, but viruses are, are not as predictable. Remember, the moisture that they like are, is in our body. They like the moisture in our nose. They like the moisture in our mouth. They like the moisture on our eyes. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the moisture. So, and that moisture is pretty much the same um, at all times of the year. Okay. Now, I know you're a big proponent of the flu shot. Uh, can you tell our listeners how it works and why it's important? Well, um, the flu shot is a, um, an immunization that changes every year. And it changes, in, in contrast, for example, to polio vaccine, which is the same from year to year, or diphtheria or pertussis or tetanus, which is the same from year to year. Uh, and that's because those bugs don't change from year to year. Okay. But flu changes every year. It's a very smart virus, and it mutates. And the strain that um, emerges from the multiple mutations that the virus goes through uh, is, is a little bit different in many years. Now, some years it's the same as the year before, but many years it's different. And so unlike the other childhood and adult immunizations where you take once and then you don't take again for five years to life, um, the flu shot you have to take every year. And it's an anticipatory shot, so that the flu vaccine is designed based on the first strains, 
that are seen in the southern hemisphere because we haven't gotten those strains yet and we anticipate that those will be the strains that are most prominent in the northern hemisphere when they come here and vice versa. Okay. So the flu shot in the southern hemisphere is based on what we've right. seen the previous season in the northern hemisphere. Um, but it's an important shot and it's not 100% mm -hmm. uh, effective but it's, it's 70 plus percent per, uh, effective and that will cut down a lot of episodes of flu. Now will taking it get you sick? You know, there have been uh, lots of anecdotes that people have that if I take this, I took the shot, I was fine, I took the shot and I got sick. Uh, they just don't hold up. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody um, uh, has different reactions to vaccines and some people do feel um, a little uh, feverish or a pain at the, local, at the site of the immunization um, after taking many different shots. Uh, the flu shot, people have said, I got the flu from taking the flu shot. No, you didn't get the flu. But you might have had an immunologic reaction to the vaccine contents that was a little bit like the immunologic reaction that you had with the flu. You may feel a little bit punk afterwards, but you didn't get the flu, and mm -hmm. you're feeling going to feel a lot better than had you gotten the flu. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so apart from hand washing and the flu shot, do you have any secrets for me to decrease my chances of catching the flu? Yeah, it's all the things that the grandparents recommended okay. that we poo-pooed and said that's not going to be that's not going to hold up. All right, so um, you need to dress warm when it's cold outside because there have there's been some studies, great studies, that show that exposure to cold, if you're harboring the cold virus, increases your chances of get developing symptoms. So everybody everybody at periods of time are exposed to the virus, but if you take a cold hit. Um, improper dress, for example, at the time that you're harboring the virus, you may have as much as a threefold increased chance of getting sick from that virus. You wouldn't have even have known you had it before. Proper nutrition is very important. Vitamin C will help reduce the duration okay. of a cold. Will not prevent you from getting it, but will help reduce the duration of a cold if you have a, um, a diet that's rich in vitamin C that you take every day, even before you get the before you get the cold. Exercise, regular daily exercise, 45 minutes a day, five times a week, will cut your incidence of colds and flu by half, as some studies have shown. So regular exercise, dress for the weather, um, have proper nutrition, and then finally sleep. Sleep-deprived individuals get more colds and flu. Interesting. Um, you touched on exercise, and I want to stay on that for a second. When you have a cold, not not the flu, because the flu you, you need to rest and your your, your muscles are sore. Is it uh, in fact beneficial to exercise when you have the cold, sort of to sweat it out? No, it's a it's a break even. So okay. if what you've got is limited to the head and neck, mm -hmm. it's probably okay to go ahead and exercise. But it won't make you feel better faster, and it won't make you sicker. Okay. But you're right. If you've got illness that's sort of below the neck, mm -hmm. that is, you've got a bad cough. Uh, certainly if you have a fever, then uh, you don't want to push yourself, you don't want to exercise when you've got flu-like below-the-neck symptoms. Okay. Um, now, as a pediatrician, have you found that pediatricians often get sick from their kid patients? And uh, what other precautions do you take to not get sick from, from your patients? Um, my hands are, are raw from alcohol hand sanitizer, okay. first of all, um, because it's, um, it's very, very effective. And by the time you've been in practice for 15 or 20 years, you've seen most of the stuff that comes along germ-wise. And so, um, like other adults in that age group, uh, you get less, you're less likely to become infected. But mm -hmm. when you first start practice, like when you're first a parent, for example, you're sick constantly. Um, and so the, the best you can do is to try and, and, and sanitize your hands and, and be conscious of the fact that you, 
if you touch your face, you're likely to infect yourself with something that the kids had. But yes, we get sick and then we, we get over it. Right. Okay. All right, so going back to germ-proof your kids, you talk about hot spots for uh, attracting germs. Can you give us a few examples of where people should be the most germ-phobic? Well, there are spots inside the house and there are spots outside the house. So hot spots inside the house are, are kitchen and bathroom. And um, we are, um, I think we are naive about how many infections we transmit in the kitchen. Everybody's conscious of the bathroom. But we're naive about how, um, how frequently food poisoning actually begins in the house. 90% of salmonella infections occur in the home. Um, because it, now it may be stuff that you brought in from outside, but the, it's the way it was prepared, the countertops that you prepared it on, the knives and dish rags that you used. Um, so kitchen hygiene is is a way to combat the kitchen hotspot. Um, similarly, why, even though you think your bathroom's cleaner, it's a good idea um, to wash your hands when you come out of your bathroom as well. Um, and uh, then outside, any public area that has lots of hand contact. So um, the people are, are correct to be concerned about the shopping cart handles where everybody puts their hands on it. Um, but I don't think we need to put the shopping cart through a, a car wash, which mm -hmm. some supermarkets are actually doing. Really? Uh, they, they, put their car, they put the carts through a wash after every run. You put them in the dirty line and they get washed and then they come out clean. Um, that, I think that's a little bit excessive. If people feel more comfortable wiping off um, the shopping cart handle with an alcohol swab before they before they use the shopping cart. That's a good idea. Uh, a better idea is probably to just not touch your face while you're shopping, and then when you get in the car, open the glove compartment and take out the hand sanitizer. Now, so you would recommend always having hand sanitizer on you? Not on you, but but accessible to you. Okay. So it, it, at, at your desk at work, uh, in the glove compartment, uh, in your handbag, um, someplace where you can go for it when there's no sink, but you think you probably would like one if there was one. Right. Okay. So did you find that you were successful in teaching your kids about germs? And uh, is there anything you would have done differently to make them more germ-proof? You know, this is one of those, this is one of those times when you kind of knock on wood and, and, and throw salt over your shoulder so you don't <laughs> jinx things. But um, the kids got through childhood without being sick too much. I, 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 I don't remember more than a few sick days through all of K through 12 education. Mm -hmm. now, I don't know if that's because we taught them well or because the school was attentive to those kinds of things or we were just lucky, but um, we tried to tell them what to do and, and um, it's, it's, it's hard to teach you know, six and seven year olds mm -hmm. how to not touch their face and, and wash their hands in between. So we could not possibly have done that good a job, so it was probably luck. And do you feel like you get sick less often than most of your peers? Yes. Okay. Well, great. Okay, well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you, Dr. Ropar, for joining us. Uh, this has been a informative and healthy discussion. Thank you, Dan. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Smart Sign Podcast. For more, please visit our website at smartsign.com.